A shepherd is tending his flock in a remote mountainous region when a brand new fancy BMW pulls up right next to him. The man driving the BMW is wearing an Armani suit, Kohlhaan shoes, Italian silk tie. He's got a Rolex watch. Uh, he's got rings that speak of success. And he says to the shepherd, hey, if I can tell you how many sheep, exactly how many sheep you have in your flock, will you give me one of them? The shepherd says, one, sure, yeah, one of my sheep, you got me, but you got to be exact. He parks his car, he hops out, he pulls out a, his Apple device, he surfs to the NASA page on the internet. Uh, he comes up with a GPS navigation system. He uploads um, a digital photo and sends it to a processing place over in India. Within seconds, he gets an email back that says the image is processed, the data has been stored. He waits a couple of minutes, and then he has the answer. The exact answer, he says, you have 1,536 sheep. The shepherd says, you got it. I guess you can have one of my sheep. And the man inspects and then selects. And as he puts one of uh, the shepherd's animals in his car, the, the shepherd looks amused. And he says, hey, if I tell you exactly what business you're in, can I have my sheep back? The man says, yeah. He says, you're a consultant. He says, wow, how'd you know? He said, because you came here when nobody asked you to, answering questions I never asked to, an answer I already knew. You don't know about my business. Now give me back my dog. This morning, we're going to go back in time to a statement that Jesus made. Uh, Matthew chapter 9 and verse 36, here it is. Jesus makes this statement. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Leave that up for a moment. That's, that's the story today. That's what we're preaching from. That's what we're looking at. But I asked you a question with the passage on the big screens. How... Can a statement about shepherds and sheep spoken so long ago, how can it mean so much to us today? I tell you, it really does. It does because we need this. It does because we, we live in a, a, what one writer, Deborah Tennant, a Georgetown University professor in linguistics, she wrote a, an article in 1988. Now that's a long time ago for most of us. Uh, but I tell you, it really rings with relevance today. She talks about how we live in an argument culture. Remember, this was written in 88 before social media. It's only gotten worse and it's only getting worse. Are we stemming the tide? Are we part of the problem or part of the solution? What's our voice? What role do we play? How can we be soft and light? But we live in an argument culture. And in this argument culture, Jesus introduces to us a long time ago. He talks about this idea of compassion. And the problem with us is that we miss compassion because the call of compassion is to empathize before we analyze. And you and I are living in a world where we quickly analyze and then we argue, right? Because we got it because we have the right position because we're correct. And we, we analyze and then we argue and we analyze their arguments. And before you know it, we're lobbing grenades and we've spent little to no time in empathy. The mission of the church, let me put it this way. The mission of the church is not to look at the world with disdain and say, shape up. It's to look at the world. Or do we have that quote? It's to look at the world with compassion and to want to help out. 
Note takers, if you want a big idea, this could be one today. The mission of the church is not to look at the world with disdain. We do that in an argument culture. And we, we have this view of let's shape it up. But the call of compassion is to look at the world with that feeling of empathy and to say, let's help out. You don't know it unless you study it, but in Matthew 9, as I've read and studied this week, I think Jesus is hearkening back to what is stated in Ezekiel chapter 34. And in Ezekiel chapter 34 and verse 4, it tells us what a shepherd does. A shepherd strengthens the weak. A shepherd helps those who are sick, binds up the injured, brings back the stray, and searches for the lost. And in that context, it's clear in Ezekiel 34, that's in verse 4, the five things that a good shepherd does, that a shepherd leader does. But there is a pain. A pain in the heart of God because that's not being done. And the sheep, it says in Ezekiel 34, verse 5 and 6, that they wander. They wander aimlessly and they're open to attack from wild animals and to the environment, to circumstances and situations above them, beyond them. And here's Jesus. I say this often quoting from Matthew 5. Jesus He didn't come to abolish the law and prophets. He came to fulfill them. The Old Testament is very valuable. Now, if you ever read the Old Testament, you think, whew, that's just so archaic. There's so much there. But, you know, it's all important and it's all relevant to us. It's all inspired. But we live in the new covenant. And because there's Jesus, right, we, we understand that better. But Jesus looks back and he looks at the people. And some probably knew it. When he said this, when he made this statement, when he looked out and saw them as sheep without a shepherd, helpless, harassed, that he was speaking from the prophets and he was saying, hey, something here is going to be fulfilled. There's going to be a new day. We live in an argument culture, but the call of compassion is to empathize before we analyze the mission of the church is not to look at the world with disdain and say, shape up. It's to look at the world with compassion and say, I want to help out. Church, let's rebuke ourselves in this. Let's elevate our way of thinking. There's a different way that Jesus calls us to. This passage says, let's break it down. It says that he saw. Jesus saw. Now, Scripture tells us that we are limited in how we see. In fact, uh, giving us a precursor, kind of a, a taste of heaven. It says that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can conceive what God has prepared, prepared for those who love him. So we're all going to be limited. But the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 5.21 says, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes who are clever in their own sight. You ever use that expression? It comes from the Bible, Isaiah 5, 21. How do we see ourselves? If we're wise in our own eyes, clever on our own sight, that's a problem. How do we see ourselves? How do we see God? And because we're talking about compassion that moves us today, we're, we're, we want to hone in on how we see others. And this passage says that he saw. Don't miss that. He saw. The one who saw is the one Who would say the following? You've heard this, that the eye is the lamp of the body. You know what Jesus said right after that? 
He said, if the eyes are good, the whole body is full of light. What's he saying there? He's saying, don't underestimate how important seeing is. In fact, the beginning of loving is looking. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body is full of light. You ever had one of those moments, you know, like, I can see clearly now, right? I mean, you're, you're in a fog, and then all of a sudden, you're singing that song, and you can just see clearly, because something happened, and it was good, right? When God created, it was good. Something happened in you, something creative. Uh, there was a spark, and you can see clearly now. The, the eye is the lamp of the body. When the eyes are good, the whole body is full of life. Now, conversely, Jesus said, when the eye is bad, gouge it out. And Jesus is talking about the danger of seeing life in a perverted way, of seeing life in a distorted way, of seeing life in a lustful way of a I take instead of I give. In the most famous story ever told, no matter where you live on the globe, no matter what philosophy or religion or ideas you subscribe to, the most famous story ever told was in, by Jesus in Luke chapter 10, the story of the Good Samaritan. And you, you know this, but there was a man and he was beaten up and he was left on the side of the road. He was left on the side of the road to die. A priest walks by and the scripture tells us in Jesus' story, his made-up story, his parable, to teach us something about life. Jesus tells us that the priest, the very religious person, sees, but he walks on. The Levite, you know this, he sees, but he goes on. And then Jesus says, but the good Samaritan, now that's offensive to the Jewish person. Samaritans were not good. That's like me standing up here and telling a parable and saying the good Colin Kaepernick, right? Anybody offended there? Would anybody, would that kind of get your blood going? Would you, would you have trouble with the rest of the sermon? Because I said, the good Colin Kaepernick, right? If I told a story about you and you walked by, but Colin Kaepernick helped out, that'd be troubling, Let's, right? And Jesus says, the good Samaritan, he sees. Now the priest saw, the Levite saw, the good Samaritan saw. But the priest and the Levite, they saw a problem. The good Samaritan saw a person. The thief, the, the thief, remember the man was beaten up. He had been robbed and left to die. So there's three in the story, three that saw him. First were the thieves, don't miss that. And the thieves, they saw the world through this prism. What's yours is mine. Then the religious people, not necessarily evil people. They were going to do something good, probably, probably going to the temple, probably were going to fast and pray and give alms in order to help other people or to stand up and speak and tell their congregation how important it is to help other people. But they saw through the prism of what's mine is mine. And that could describe a lot of us, but the good Samaritan, he saw everything through the prism of what's mine is yours. The eye is the lamp of the body. If the eye is good, it lights up the whole body. The Good Samaritan. Think of another famous story that resonates around the world. The story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. In Luke 15, 20 says this. So 
he got up. Now, this is when he, he, had, he had partied like it's 1999. He had wasted his life, the Bible says, in riotous living with prostitutes, literally ended up in a pigsty. And so he got up, this younger brother who had wasted his inheritance, spent all of his father's money. He got up and he went to his father. He was at the end of himself. The verse before that says he came to his senses. But while he was still a long way off, his father what? Say it. His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. He saw him what? A long way off. Now, probably when you see something or somebody a long way off, you're looking for them, right? You're looking for them. Have you ever found out that when you're really looking, you're more open to finding, you're more open to seeing? In fact, the invitation to follow Jesus by faith is to ask, seek, and knock. Ask, seek, and knock. And then Jesus puts himself out there on the limb. He says, when you ask, you'll receive. When you seek, you will find. When you knock, the door will be opened. But you got to go first. You got to ask. You got to seek. You got to knock. Here we see the seeing. We see the looking. He was looking for his son. His eyes were way out there on the horizon, and he saw, and just the same Greek language used in Luke 15 is used here in Matthew 9, and there's this compassion he saw. He saw. What did Jesus see? He saw the crowd. And I don't, want, I don't want you this morning to be fooled by this word. And it's easy, especially today, to feel like this world is cold and impersonal, to feel like you're just a number. In fact, anytime you get more than 50 to 100 people in a room, it's easy to feel that way, right? A, a grain of sand on the shore, a pebble in a rock pile, just a number, a cog in a wheel, an ant on a mound, Pick your metaphor. It's just easy to feel like you're lost in the shuffle, right? In fact, churches. Nick Crawford is one of our leaders here to, to make sure that every willing heart that wants to find friendship and spiritual growth can find it here so that you won't feel like this is an impersonal place. But it's easy to feel that way. And don't let the word crowd fool you. Psychologists say that there's two kinds of loneliness. There's conventional loneliness and then there's crowded loneliness. And conventional loneliness, we understand that. It's the old man or old lady in the nursing home. In fact, I want to show you a picture that's very personal to me. That's, my, that's Mavis. You've heard me talk about Mavis. I stood up here several months ago and told you how Mavis, my, my grandmother, told me uh, not so long ago that she wanted to go ahead and get to heaven because all of her friends were up there wondering or thinking she didn't make it. <laughs> and there she is. She's actually about 40-something days from being 99 years old. And honestly, I didn't think I'd be preaching today because I thought I was going to have to hop in my truck and go up there, and I still might. But she has pneumonia and a heart condition and was put in the hospital this week. And I'm texting with my, my dad, who's her only son. And we're talking because we want her to be cared for. We don't want to miss her last breaths. Godly woman. We want to be there. We don't want her to be lonely. And you don't want to know the statistics of how many old folks are in nursing homes and people, family, don't call and don't come. You don't want to know the number of visits and phone calls. that You, you don't want to know that. I read it. 
It's too depressing. But that's conventional loneliness. If, if Mavis was here, she'd probably sit out there and go, Robert, why don't you put a picture of me up when I was younger and beautiful and foxy, like, like in my 20s or 30s. But you can take, you can take Mavis down. But that's conventional loneliness, but there's crowded loneliness, and this is harder for us to understand. Crowded loneliness is you in New York City and Manhattan riding a subway, and you're around, man, it's just concrete jungle, and there's blank millions of people in the Big Apple, and you're on a subway, right? And if my wife's there, she'd have the hand sanitizer, right? And she'd tell the kids not to touch the, the pole, and she'd put the hand, right? But you're there around a lot of people, and you're lonely. Because you're created, you're wired by your creator, all of us, whether you're an extrovert like me or an introvert like a lot of you, we're wired differently, but all of us are wired for deep attachment. And you and I can be around an awful lot of people and feel lonely. I don't know if anybody would be vulnerable enough to nod at me or raise your hand, but have you ever been in a crowd and you felt lonely? I'm telling you, I have. That's, a, that's it's painful. Where's God in that? So Jesus spoke to the crowd, but don't let the word crowds throw you for a loop here. Because Jesus' love was never cold and impersonal. Jesus spoke words of kindness and forgiveness to adulterers and prostitutes, to outcasts and to the untouchables. You know the longest, anybody know the longest recorded conversation that Jesus had in the scriptures? Anybody know who that was with? The woman at the well in John 4. And in this story, it's the, it's the lengthiest conversation Jesus has. Now think about it. A man talking to a woman in a public square, that was offensive. A Jewish rabbi talking to a, a Samaritan half-bred woman who'd been married five times, who was living with her sixth man. And that's Jesus's, that's his longest conversation. So when, when we see that he had compassion on the crowd, okay, don't let that fool you because it was targeted to people. Because compassion, you see, is, it's, it's emotional, it's involved, and it's highly personal. He saw the crowd. And what, is the, what does it tell us? That he had compassion. It's a beautiful word. It's a beautiful word. Here's what it is in the Greek. Say it out loud. Ready? Don't think. Just say it. Splakizomai. Say it. Splakizomai. When someone asks you today, what did the preacher talk about? Say, like his am I. And this is the word, and do you know what it means? It means, ready for this? It means uh, a pain deep in the bowels. Yeah. So for those of us who maybe over-intellectualize our faith, for those of us who really do spend our time in an argument culture, right, analyzing rather than empathizing, let Splagizomai, speak to you today. This is what Jesus had for the crowds, what he had that was personal and emotional and highly involved. Deep in the bowels. Same word I showed you from Luke 15, the father who looked at the distance and saw his son from afar and ran to him and had the, later would kill the fatted calf. He put the ring on his finger and the robe and kissed him and said, my son is home. No matter his sin, no matter the depth of depravity, no matter the abyss 
of his selfishness, no matter the fact that he squandered his inheritance, he's home. That's what matters. I love you no matter what, and you are home. And that's what he had, splachizomai. He was moved in the stomach, in the bowels, the intestines. A little gross for some of you? Probably not. He had compassion. Now, we didn't put it up because i like you to read later. But if you were to go on in Matthew 9, after that, it says that what? Okay, he saw them. He saw the crowd. He had compassion on them. Why did he have compassion? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were, they were harassed and they were helpless. Again, I think hearkening back to Ezekiel 34 that you could read later. And there it says, after this, it says what? There's this command, this invitation for us to what? To pray. To pray. He wants us to pray because he wants us to know that this is the Father's work. Anybody here involved in a ministry? I don't, I don't know if you're you know, paid like me. I don't know if you're paid to stand up in front of a crowd. But do you do ministry? Do you have something regularly that you go to? Have you been caring for some people or a person? It can be difficult. And it's easy to get discouraged, isn't it? It's easy to grow weary in doing well. And what you need to be reminded of is what I've needed to be reminded of somewhat recently in my own life is that this is the Father's work. Sometimes a conversation with my wife is not enough. And I don't have the gift of just coming directly to Susan saying, hey, I need you to talk, I need perspective. I just moan and complain, right, and have kind of a foulness, a, a stench about me. And then she'll, she'll stop what she's doing. She goes, there's my husband. Here's his weakness. This is God's call in my life. This is how I minister him is stop what I'm doing and give him a little perspective, which sometimes could be a pep talk, right? And as much help as that is to me, as steadying and stabilizing as it is in my life, there are times when even that is not good enough, where I need to go to the Father. I need to pray. This is his work. It's bigger than me. It's bigger than you. And whatever you're trying to tackle, whatever ministry you're seeking to do, whatever level of compassion you're wanting to see come out of your life towards somebody, it's the Father's work. And you and I are asked to pray. We're, pr we're asked to pray. Let's stop there. We're asked to pray. Back behind me here a few weeks ago, the our leadership team, our elders met. And one of the things that we talked about, Jeff and I did, is how that the last year or two, in a way, has beat us up a little bit. Now, I think there's a lot of health and a dynamic element there, but I think there's a weariness, probably. And we've been tackling a lot of business stuff. You know, when you, when you, when you move into a new property and take on a big building and you just, you, you, neighborhood stuff and missions, just a lot that we've taken on. And there's business there's numbers and stuff. And I look at that and I think, well, you know, you look at what Scripture says. That the call of a pastor is not to be a businessman. The call of the pastor is not to be, to, to lead some entrepreneurial enterprise that's governed by numbers. It's to be a shepherd. It's to strengthen the weak and heal the sick and bind up the injured and bring back the strays. 
and search for the lost. And so those who lead need to be about the word and prayer. So we're beginning to think, how can we be more about that? How can we be about prayer? It's why I appreciated my brother Jeff this week, Monday morning, sending an email to a few of us saying, here's some things we can pray for. And it helped me. It helped me focus not just my day, but my week. And I started what? With prayer. Praying for some of these things. Pray. When you see the world, instead of arguing, think about empathizing. Instead of arrogantly saying, well, we've got all the answers, right? And there's us and them. And you look at the world with disdain because your position is correct. And you're looking at the world with disdain saying, shape up. Instead of with compassion, saying, I want to help out. Pray. It's the Father's work. And it's amazing to me. Despite all my weaknesses, my limitations, and my sin, despite that, he uses me. He uses you and he will use you. He'll use you to do those very same things. He will use you to shepherd and love and care for other people. But you and I, we must pray. And what does he say in the next verse? A couple of you may have the text open. But he says, pray for laborers. Pray the Lord of the harvest will what? Will raise up laborers, not consultants. We made fun of them at the beginning of the sermon. Sorry if you're a consultant. Not consultants, not people with ideas, but people that will step out of the shower and do something about those ideas. Laborers. Hearkening back to the most famous story ever told in Luke 10, when Jesus talks about the good Samaritan, it uses 10 verbs in just two verses. 10 verbs. It, it says to us, I don't know if I can recount them all, but it says, he came, he saw, he felt pity, he bandaged wounds, he poured oil and wine, he put him on a donkey, he took him to the end, he told the innkeeper to take care of him, and long before the, the Terminator Arnold Schwarzenegger said, I'll be back, he said, I'm coming back, innkeeper, you take care of him, inns weren't that nice of places back then, you watch him and take care of him and I'll be back. That's going, to, you know what Jesus said, go the extra mile, the good Samaritan went the extra mile. Ever been in the hospital? And you're hurting, and you're just, you're just needy. I ended up in a hospital one time in Fargo, North Dakota. I won't remind some of you why. But I was in an ambulance, went to the hospital, and I just was needy. And there was, thank God, there was staff there and nurses. And I couldn't even lift up my head at one point. So, you know, they, they brought me water. And water's great, Right? And they brought me a straw with the water. Not just one of those straws, but one of those straws that like bends, you know. Like that's the extra mile. Like the nurse bent the straw. It was six years ago. I still remember it. She bent the straw. I'm like, whoo, thank God for bent straws. Because I couldn't lift my head up, right? That's the extra. When you have a straw, that's good. I make fun of my wife when she's drinking at the table. She'll have a straw. We did this Friday night. But she'll, when she drinks, she'll, she'll bend down and she'll go. That's how she drinks her. But we love some straws. But when you have a straw that'll bend towards you, because you can't do that, right? There's the extra mile. And this inn was a hospital for somebody that was beaten up. And he went the extra mile. Ten verbs. Pray for laborers. Pray for verbs. Pray for people that would be raised up to do something about it. I love that. 
In 1 Corinthians 15, 57, 15, chapter 15, verse 57 and 58, it says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, 1 Corinthians 15 is about the resurrection. It, it's that chapter that says, This is why our faith matters. And this is what we point to above and beyond anything else. He says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding. Listen, always abounding in the work or the labor of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Live your life with verbs moving. And as you do, there's a promise. Now, we can take it or leave it, but there's a promise there. If we follow Jesus and we're steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. We don't, we don't just give somebody a straw. It's a straw that bends. We're going the extra mile and loving people. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Your, your work in the Lord is not in vain. Patrick Morley is an Orlando businessman. And he writes, he says, when I was a young businessman, he's gone on to great success. He said, when I was a young businessman, I would take the time. Listen, fellas and young women and young men, I would, when I was younger, I would, I was so ambitious, but I would take time. Every time I was around an older man or woman, and I would ask them, what are your regrets? And here are the top four he compiled them. I would have loved more deeply. I would have laughed more often. I would have given more generously. I would have lived more boldly. Now, I'm still tripped up at my age about dumb things I've done. Are you? And ever so, ever so often, somebody goes, hey, Robert, you know, I, I, I now moved back to the state of Mississippi, Mississippi after being gone for 14 years, and I was like away from some of that, now I've moved back. And occasionally somebody will come into church, and they knew me back in high school. And I was kind of squeaky clean, but I did a lot of stupid things. And I just, sometimes I'm like, oh man, can't believe I did that. But Patrick Morley would say that most of our regrets are what you didn't do. I would have loved more deeply. I would have laughed more often. I would have given more generously. I would have lived more boldly. So nobody's here today as we round toward home. Nobody's here today going, you know, I'm against compassion. Nope. Not for it. Not going to do it. Splag, whatever you said earlier. I'm not that stuff in my gut, you know, the bowels, and that's gross. I'm not going to do any of that. Nobody comes here today and says, I'm against compassion. Nobody would stand up today and say, we need less of that, less compassion, right? But there's a gap between our convictions and our commitment. Our commitments. One writer says that there's a few kinds of commitments. He asked the question, do your commitments match your convictions? They're dramatic commitments. Dramatic commitments are, well, just like the name would imply, those, that's the big stuff. That's the thing that gets our attention that we, that we talk about a lot. There's routine commitments. That's like signing up your eight-year-old eight to, to a soccer league. Like there are cults that demand more of your time than soccer leagues today. Am I right? We, our daughter, she's 15, and she's going to join the show choir, and we have friends who are like, oh, Robert, can you afford it? Do you have the money? Do you have the time? Are you sure you know what you're getting into? They're routine commitments, and we make those on a very regular basis. 
I was talking to a friend who bought a bigger house, more square footage, but they live further out. It's a longer commute, a very long commute. They made a commitment to get a bigger house and to live nicer, but there were some things they forgot about or didn't take into consideration. Those are routine commitments that we make. And then there are unspoken commitments. Things that you don't articulate, you don't write them down. But these are some ambitions that we have. Again, unspoken commitments. These are some hobbies that we kind of find ourselves hot. These are chat rooms that we get into. These are addictions that form. And it should be no surprise that experts or those who've been in addictions have shared with experts how much time, whether it's sex or shopping or some type of drugs, there's just, it just requires not just the time to indulge in that habit, but it's the hiding of it, the regretting, the fantasizing about it. There's just so much involved in that. And there are unspoken commitments. Like, for example, the most pervasive one is watching TV. None of you, none of you wrote down, I'm going to watch four hours of TV today. But most of us will, surveys say. None of you guys, well, you probably did. I'm going to watch 12 hours of football. Yeah, you probably did that. But for the most part, none of us say, I'm going to waste this kind of time. But do your commitments match your convictions? You see, you're here today, like, I want to be more compassionate. I want our church to be more compassionate, right? That would probably be a conviction if it settles in and if it wells up within us. But, but it has to be reflected. It's got to be reflected in our commitments. The day-to-day. Now, it's the dramatic commitments that get our time and our, or get our attention, but our lives really are shaped by our routine and unspoken commitments. Do you believe that? It's true. And do we have room? Do we have room to be compassionate people? It's great that we've hired a mission pastor. He was riding around Thursday night like I was on a golf cart in a bright green shirt. And I look over at Van. I thought, man, it's great to have this guy. He's out loving the community. We're not, we're not, we don't have him here to sit in the office all day, right, and theorize, form different clubs. No, we, we have him here to help lead us into our community and to, into our partners around the world. And we're hoping more and more to give you Ways to step into compassionate efforts. Sometimes it's organized. Like, for example, you're invited. Everybody's invited, not this Thursday night, but next, right here to a foster care program. Foster care through our eyes on Thursday night, September the 15th. Come. It doesn't mean that you have to take a, take a kid, although that would be cool. It doesn't mean that at all. It's an opportunity to learn about foster care. It's an opportunity to see the big gap between children who need love. And families who have love to give. And there's a, there's a, a big gap. Can you, can, you, can, you, can you believe that? And it's a growing gap in Mississippi. And to come and learn and learn about families. Here are three stories of families who are saying, hey, here's what we did. Here's how glorious it is. Here's how hard it is. Here's how rewarding it is. That's happening. Some of the things we do are organized that we invite you to step into. But sometimes it's just organic. A young man was at our church a few years ago. And he left church that day with his wife and kids. And he drove past a homeless man. But he stopped, he turned around, and he had a conversation that changed him. That literally has affected his way of living and what he does for a living and how he spends his time. 
And there's a whole new ministry form because this man came to Fondren Church one day and the preacher didn't say to do anything. I wouldn't, I didn't have a bullhorn on the roof going, hey, help that homeless man. He did it. He did it. And here's what I want to say because we need this for a watching world and God changed our hearts. There's a difference between sporadic exercise of compassion and a steady embodiment. Four great words to write down. Sporadic exercise versus steady embodiment. And sporadic exercise is when we say, look at us, look at us. And we have a few events and we do things and you know, we raise money and it's like, look at us, look at us. And we're, we're, we're helping out once a year or a few times a year or something like that. That's good, it's better than nothing. But a sporadic exercise is not what we're called to. We're called to a steady embodiment. And I say it often, but there's nothing like the church. In a moment, we'll have an opportunity to worship through giving, and the plates comes around, and we have an opportunity to worship God. And we as a church have an opportunity to say, God, take these tithes and offerings and let compassion reign supreme. Jesus said, don't have a sporadic exercise of compassion. Let it be a steady embodiment in your life. Would you pray with me?